Today at Reader's Corner, Naomi Hirahara, author of the new novel Clark and Division. I'm Bob Kustra. Welcome to Reader's Corner. On today's program, best-selling mystery novelist Naomi Hirahara joins us to talk about her latest book, Clark and Division. Set in World War II Chicago, the novel unfolds around the mysterious story of a young woman searching for the truth about her older sister's death against the backdrop of a Japanese-American family's struggles following their release from mass incarceration at Manzanar. Inspired by historical events, Clark and Division is part crime novel, part poignant historical fiction, gleaned from 30 years of the author's research and archival work in Japanese-American history. Naomi Hirahara is a most prolific Edgar Award-winning author of short stories in a number of novel series, including Summer of the Big Bocce, which was Publishers Weekly Best Book of the Year and one of the Chicago Tribune's 10 Best Books of the Year. She has also written nonfiction books such as Life After Manzanar and Terminal Island, Lost Communities of Los Angeles Harbor. Naomi Hirahara, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's let's start with uh, your sharing the history of this period. Uh, what brings Japanese Americans to Chicago and other cities back east? Certainly, our Idaho listeners know something about this issue, considering the fact that one of the camps to which Japanese Americans were sent is just outside of Rupert, Idaho, uh, in the middle of the state. That would be Minidoka, as I know you know. Um, but maybe you could just give us a, a refresher for those of our listeners who uh, may have forgotten, although I don't know how you could. Well, the Ito family story was inspired by um, the mass incarceration, as you mentioned, of Japanese Americans. They totaled 110 to 120,000 people from the West Coast to the nation's interior in 10 um mass incarceration camps, but there were also smaller ones that held the first generation Issei leaders. They could have, you know, just done something as innocuous as been the judo teacher, the Japanese language teacher, and those people were in these special camps. So um, what probably was seminal for me was working at the Japanese American newspaper in Los Angeles called the Rafu Shinpo. And I worked there um, in two periods of time as a reporter in the 1980s and then later as an editor. And this was the time of, you know, the Civil Liberties Bill was signed and Ronald Reagan had signed it. And this was like the disbursement of the apologies as well as the monetary restitution to um, these survivors who had gone through this experience of being pushed out of their homes and, you know, either um, behind barbed wire in the desert or in the swamplands of Arkansas and, and then released to what, you know, the ones who are wealthier had some means to rebuild their lives, but other people, they, you know, received like $25 and the bus trip to a place like, uh, Chicago, you know, which a train trip to Chicago. And um, Chicago was the number one destination for Japanese Americans being released from camp during the war. Well, I was visiting Chicago recently and was in a Barnes and Noble bookstore in Skokie when I found your book prominently displayed. I read the jacket cover uh, that it was crime fiction combined with a history of Japanese Americans living in the period. And I was hooked. 
as I said before we went on the air, your novel is so true to Chicago's history, its culture, its street grid, its attention to the landmarks of the day. And and then I learn you're a Californian. And I'm thinking, now let's see, how much time did she have to spend in Chicago to get down these landmarks and the streets and whatever? Could you share with us uh, how you did your research? You must have spent considerable time in Chicago to get this done. Not as much as you would think, but I th- but it certainly helped that um, I had interviewed so many people in California who had spent time in Chicago. And uh-huh. it wasn't it wasn't really conscious for me. I was going, oh, you know, um, this <laughs> elder lived in Chicago or this person had been born in Chicago. And I, I never really was that curious why that was until I worked on that Life After Manzanar book and discovered like how many before World War II, there were about 400 Japanese Americans in Chicago. And then by the mid 40s, there were 20,000. So that kind of gives you a sense of the diaspora and movement. And it's interesting, a lot of because most of them either went into the suburbs or returned to the West Coast. A lot of people in Chicago don't even you know, they're not even cognizant of this history. So, yeah, I had some guides, some Chicago guides. You know, every community has that the resident social historian who just loves digging deep. And luckily, I had two friends that gave me walking tours of this neighborhood called Clark and Division. It's an actual intersection in Chicago. And that was the first early way station for Japanese Americans. So it was a very chaotic time, even though the government and religious faith leaders were saying, don't congregate in, you know, three Japanese Americans more. What were they going to do? You know, they only had each other to kind of ease this transition. And of course, housing was a premium. So a lot of uh, people kind of lived on top of each other in this area. And later they moved to other parts of Chicago. But I just was there. I wanted to pinpoint because I am a Californian. I'm, I did not live in Chicago, but I felt like not much was written about this particular neighborhood during the wartime years from like 1943 to 1945. So I thought as a mystery writer, I could um, fill in the gaps. And one of the um, interesting things I found in my research was an actual report by Chicago Resettlers Group in the 1940s. And they were bemoaning the juvenile delinquency um, among Japanese Americans because the first to be released were the Nisei, the American-born Japanese Americans. And they were the average age was 20s. They were there without parental supervision. So what happens when you're torn from your home, you're held in a you know, camp, and then you're in one of the most notorious cities in the United States, you know, you're going to party, you're going to look for romance, you know, you're just going to try to do all the things you couldn't do while you were under confinement. And as a result, I'm, I'm not saying all the people, but there was a certain segment that got into trouble. The report mentioned there were um, babies being born out of wedlock. There was abortion, which was illegal at the time. There was a stick of man in the community and other things. I won't I won't uh, spoil what's in the book, but <laughs> a lot of things I, I would say all the criminal activity that's um, described in the book um, is actually based on true events. Mm-hmm. 
And you mentioned the fact that uh, it wasn't wise for more than three people uh, to gather, three Japanese Americans in the city. I, I wasn't, I'm not clear on whether or not that was some kind of a law or a rule or whether that was just something that uh, the locals in Chicago suggested to incoming Japanese Americans so they didn't get in trouble? I, what, what was I that? I think the government, I think they were trying to um, have the Japanese American population assimilated. They didn't want like a Japan town to pop up, uh-huh. even though their work, I mean, I've looked, I've, I've uh, come across some guidebooks to Chicago, like written in the 1950s, and they did refer to Clark and Division informally as Little Tokyo, but no one else did. But they mm-hmm. didn't want that kind of congregation of people. And, th- and that's why if you go to Chicago, there's no real physical remnants or visual rem- remnants of this community that was once there. So I think they were trying to erase, you know, um, this this group of people and have them hidden all throughout America. Um, but of course, that did not happen. Mm-hmm. When I worked in downtown Chicago, I had a coworker who was Japanese American, and if I'm not mistaken, I remember her telling her family story, and it's a story that I think Americans probably forget if they ever knew. And that is that that she her family predate predated World War II in Chicago, so they were sent nowhere. They were okay. There there was in fact, and I, I'd like you to share this with our listeners. There was a military exclusion line that made no sense uh, by anybody's standards, except there back in the forties, I guess. But could you explain who who was sent to these camps and who was not? Yeah, you know it it was. Uh, really interesting and it changed over time at one point that military line was through um, California so like I had relatives who lived um, in the farmland kind of this uh, near John John Steinbeck country and then Mm -hmm. they voluntarily moved um, to the Fresno area which was supposed to be okay and quote, free. But then they said all of California was off limits to Japanese Americans. In Arizona, Phoenix, the city was split in half. So it depended on what side of Phoenix you lived. And of course, if you were, you know, there was an orphanage, there were orphanages on the West Coast. And if even if you're a baby, you know, what kind of military threat is a baby? But they had to be incarcerated and all the orphans were in Manzanar. But um, regarding your uh, friend, um, I I try to address that too, because my story is told from the viewpoint of a young Japanese-American woman from California, Aki, and her love interest, Art Nakasone, is like one of these lifelong Chicagoans. Right. And she just feels it's so palpable for her to observe his life. And it's his family life is still intact. They have all their pets and animals and hubbub and, you know, and all this, this china on the table and wonderful food and she just contrasts to what she had to go through so yeah and then what's interesting too about the midwest was they didn't have the anti-miscegenation laws that they did in places like california so there was more um intermarriage there was Mm -hmm. um in a place like chicago and that's another contrast between these communities of people 
What was the role of the War Relocation Authority? I guess it was really what decided where you went. Is that right? The uh, War Relocation Authority, they were in charge of all the camps. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as a result, you know, they didn't necessarily want to hold all these people for the whole length of the war, right? It's expensive. Mm-hmm. And so they were trying to devise ways, how do we best release some of these people? So there was a highly controversial loyalty oath that people had to answer these questions. And it was very difficult for the Japanese immigrants, the parent, the elders, because Japanese immigrants could not become citizens, even if they wanted to, you know, they could not be naturalized like European immigrants. So mm-hmm. it's like they, they really felt, oh, I'm going to be a person without a country. So, yeah, so there was a process of answering the loyalty oaths and then these uh, movements into places like Chicago, Denver and uh, Detroit And what's so ironic is that in a place like Detroit and Chicago, there would be defense factories where these Japanese Americans would work. So it's like, I thought you were saying these people were seditious, but then why are you sending them, you know, to work in a defense factory? So a lot of it is very interesting and suspect, I guess, in terms of what is the intention of these policies. You're listening to Naomi Hirahara. She is the author of Clark in Division, part crime novel, part poignant historical fiction. And Naomi, I just uh, think I heard that the, your book was recently listed as a New York Times best mystery novel of 2021. Is that right? Yes, it was. I'm just um, floored. There's been a lot of um, support of the book. And, you know, I think as I was writing it, because I was rewriting it during the pandemic, and there was something about writing about confinement and then release and how Aki just feels like out of sorts because suddenly, you know, after being confined, she's in this new place and she's trying to figure out how to react to the world. And in a weird sense, I think that's kind of how I feel even today, (laughs) you know, I mean, I'm living in the same place, but how do we, what are the new rules? And and just psychically, we're so used to living within the four walls of our home, and suddenly we're released out, out into, you know, the outside world. So I think there's there's some similarities in in that experience as well. So let's uh, share with our listeners the plot of the novel. We're always careful here at Reader's Corner not to give anything away. This is just a great uh, crime mystery novel. And I just thought uh, you should at least share with us the plot. Uh, nothing more than it's on the jacket cover, I suppose. So uh, our listeners aren't, uh, aren't uh, told too much. But uh, please, share with us Aki's story and Rose's story. This is a story of two sisters, uh, Rose, the older sister, and Aki, the younger sister. And they're part of the Ito family in Los Angeles. And uh, during World War II, they are forcibly removed to um, Manzanar Detention Center, which is located in the Owens Valley of California. And um, Rose, older sister, um, is released early to Chicago. And then Aki and her parents follow. And Rose is like the shining star um, 
you know, Aki, she's always been in her shadow and she idolizes her sister. But once they arrive in Chicago, something tragic has befallen Rose. And now it's up to Aki to find out what really has happened to her sister, as well as um, carry her parents through this very chaotic, tumultuous period of their lives. And again, I don't think I'm giving anything away when I say that, uh, Rose dies. It's it's in. I just uh-huh. looked at the jacket jacket uh-huh. cover of the book, and uh, and of course Aki is now trying to figure out how this happens. And I, I thought one very poignant example of what it must have been like for these new Japanese Americans to land in Chicago and then have to deal with the death of a loved one was a conversation that that Aki has with a funeral director. Uh, she thinks she can bury Rose the way her family always buried their loved ones. But please share with us what she learns. So this was a result of actually going to uh, Chicago and being taken around by my guides. And one um, friend, uh, Bob Kumaki, he took me to the cemetery called Montrose Cemetery. And this was the only place where uh, people of Japanese descent could be buried. And they, um, there was this mutual aid society that had built this mausoleum. And this was even before World War II. Um, and there were some bachelors who died without means, and they would hold the ashes in that particular mausoleum. So Aki, she learns that the only place where she could really a place that could formally hold Rose's ashes was this mausoleum in the Montrose Cemetery. So it's these subtle ways. In Chicago, there wasn't like the overt racism that you felt on the West Coast, but there's these kind of subtle ways where you Mm -hmm. kind of knew that you were outsider even in in the Midwest. So Aki, the narrator of your book, remembers her sister getting the lead in a school play in which in which there was, as Aki says, some some charge of romance, that is, romance between a white kid and, and Rose in this play. And Rose doesn't really understand her sister's concern, but I think you point out, or I guess Aki points out, since she's the narrator, that uh, there are invisible rules and taboos that Japanese Americans just had to live with in that period. Please, please expand on that. Sure. Um, you know, this was like, Probably the biggest challenge of me writing the book was because it's this is from um, Aki's point of view, and I really wanted it to be first person because I I love third person um, narrative too, but I really wanted to get in the head of Aki, and I think uh, my editor was really pushing me to kind of get because. Aki and, and Rose, they're very, they're, well, especially Aki's more reflective and she's not super um, reactive or emotional. And I think even through the course of all these horrendous things that are happening, some people may read this and go, why wasn't she, you know, wailing? Why didn't, why didn't they speak out more, you know? And, and Rose, she spoke out more than other Japanese Americans, but it's just all these years where you're kind of branded as other, or, you know, your opinions are kind of snuffed out. You just get into this mode of, for me to survive, I cannot be 
so reactive to every slight or, you know, you're not going to make it through life. And um, this is something that Aki and Rose's mother really feels like you have to have a list of things to do. And she very much compartmentalized her emotions. So these are things that I had to kind of flesh out to the reader. And that's one reason why I started it from Aki's birth. So you could kind of understand what a young person like this kind of goes through through the course of their 20 years on the earth. Because mm -hmm. if you've had a different kind of upbringing or uh, responses to your existence, you, you may react to these things in a very different way. I'm Bob Custer, host of Reader's Corner. Today I'm speaking with Naomi Hirahara, author of the new novel Clark and Division, part crime novel, part poignant historical fiction. The book was recently listed as a New York Times Best Mystery Novel of 2021. Could you share your thoughts on Aki's co-workers at the Newberry Library? And for those of our listeners who may not know, the Newberry Library is just north of downtown Chicago, and um, it's a very prominent place in the life and history of the city. And there's Nancy and Phyllis. Nancy is a Polish-American. Phyllis is African-American. And personally, from living and walking the streets of Chicago, I came away thinking you wanted to make sure readers understood just what a melting pot the city was and how various immigrant groups or ethnic groups uh, reacted to each other and joined hands at times. For sure. And actually, the reason, one reason why I said it at the Newberry was an elder in our community, Sue Kunitomi Embry, I've, she's one of the women I've dedicated the book to. She was the one who pushed for Mansonar to be a historic site. But she actually had gone from Mansonar, Wisconsin, to Chicago. And she worked at the Newberry. And in her oral history, she mentions that she really loved the fact that she uh, worked beside whites and others while she was at the Newberry and in a weird way kind of opened up her world. So I felt that was like the perfect opportunity to uh, show that. Um, mm -hmm. And some people said, well, did you set it at the Newberry because the reference library holds all these stories? And I go, no, you know, that's wonderful. <laughs> but the real reason was I was kind of following a real life person. And mm -hmm. um yeah, I've heard feedback from other people, Japanese Americans from Chicago, and they really related to the scene where Aki goes to um, visit Nancy and, you know, her Polish family. And there's, you know, a lot of hubbub and everyone's eating. And one person shared her mother had that same experience only with the Italian family in Chicago. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that, you know, those interactions are, are not only idealized, but actually are rooted to a certain degree of history. Well, it would be nice to think that it's not just history and that it's still happening. And I guess another question I have of you is whether you consider your book to be somewhat of a cautionary tale. Uh, maybe cautionary is not the right word in this case, because there was this favorable interaction between and among ethnic groups in your novel but um, what does it say about the America of today, immigrants and refugees see seeking to move to America? Are we still who we were in those war years? Um, I mean, I, I think the ethnicities have changed and there's um, new uh, groups that have kind of been branded as suspicious or outsiders. And um, 
I think at times we don't want to even spend the time to get to know these people, their cultures, their values. And many times these values totally align with ours. You know, people care about family and they want to be part of a, a free society, right? That's why they come to our country. So I think that is like one of the, the constitution and the freedoms that we have is what makes our country so unique. And while um, there's been periods of time where that's been kind of abandoned or tarnished, um, I think we need to hold close to that. And it also speaks to, I think, the strength of people that no matter what you try to do to them at times as a public policy, um, I think there is something about the human spirit that we will find ways to um, hold our neighbors and our loved ones together. Maybe the pandemic is is proof of that too, and seek to elevate ourselves through whatever challenge um, we encounter. You've spent 30 years delving into research and archival work on Japanese American history. Does Clark and Division, I should say, does the plot of Clark and Division resemble any historical incident that you found in your research, or did you just make this up as novelists are entitled to do? Um, I gotta mention this before I'm, I'm shading in the gaps because uh-huh. there, there, you know, there was, um, a Siri, uh, a, a serial criminal. I'll just say that okay. <laughs> in, in Chicago. And I don't think that person was ever apprehended. So in that sense, you know, I wanted to acknowledge that there had been victims that had gone through these crimes. And I think that's why telling the story through a crime novel or mystery novel, I think it's important because the people who were released, they really wanted to remain optimistic and perhaps not even think about what had happened to them in in terms of the detention camps. They wanted to look forward, which is totally understandable. But because this crime hits the Ito family, Aki doesn't have that luxury to put it behind her. She has to like dig in to the pain and the, the, how, how wrong the whole family and the community has been um, through this experience. So, um, yeah, it's very much, um, you know, it kind of goes back to that one community resettlement report. It, it's just like one page, but I, I didn't, when I looked at oral histories, nobody was addressing it openly. Like it was not something that people wanted to relive or talk about. So mm-hmm. I felt this is my job to fill in those blanks. You know, Albert Camus has a quote that uh, I use every now and then when I'm trying to convince a friend to read a novel instead of a steady diet of nonfiction. And that quote is, fiction is the lie through which we tell the truth. And boy, that really applies to your novel. And I found it so interesting how you managed to integrate into your novel conversations between and among the the folks in the novel uh, about what was going on at the time. And at one point, Aki's co-worker, Phyllis, who's African-American, as I said earlier, tells Aki that her brother had been sent to fight the Japanese. And then Aki reflects on segregated military units. And again, I suppose 
We all remember, I hope we remember, that there were segregated military units, but it didn't just apply to African-Americans. Japanese-American troops were also segregated in, in the war, sent to Europe, distinguished themselves. In fact, Daniel James Brown has a novel out called Facing the Mountain, which I believe is the story of four of those families. I'm sure you're, you're aware of that, Naomi. But um, again, I, if you care to comment, fine. But I, I just think it's so interesting how you manage to weave these things into a novel. And as Camus said, fiction is the lie through which we tell the truth. Yeah, I love that saying, and I, I repeat it. Um, I tell lies to tell the truth. That's my, what I usually <laughs> say. But um, the, the story of the uh, Nisei segregated unit, the 100th 442nd, it's part of my father-in-law, my late father-in-law's story. He um, wow. fought in Europe, um, and actually he was injured and uh, had to re- wear a brace, you know, his whole life. And um, so... Definitely, because this uh, book is set during World War II, um, men, you know, being drafted or joining the army is definitely an important part of the book. And it's it's also important for Aki to imagine like the black American experience, too, because so much sometimes we just tend to be so narrowly focused on just our community. And I think for Aki to be friends with Phyllis, you know, she's her world is kind of opening up um, as well, you know, which is important. Mm -hmm. Well, you've written a a fine novel and it's so informative and so instructive and so mysterious. Uh, I cannot suggest any stronger to our listeners that they get out and get a copy of Clark and Division by Naomi Hirahara. Naomi, thank you so much for joining us today at Reader's Corner. Thank you so much for having me. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. Reader's Corner.